Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? We are glad you're here. And for those of you that are uh, viewing us online, we thank you for choosing to be here. Lots of places you could be, lots of things you could do, but you've chosen to be here, and we thank you for that. It's a wonderful time to be together, amen, with the Lord. He's worthy to be loved and served. It's marvelous. Listen, uh, a couple Sundays ago, our pastor was here, and he he told a story about his uh, sermon professor and uh, talked about how you shouldn't read great, big, long passages of Scripture uh, prior to the preaching. Just get right to the point. Well, I want to tell you about my preaching professor. Uh, he had a thing about jokes. He did not like jokes. And he used to just drill that into us. Do not tell jokes while you're preaching. Because it's the word of God and it's serious business. And so, there was this Baptist preacher, Pentecostal preacher, and a Catholic priest. They were good friends all, had been friends for a long time. And the Baptist preacher and the Pentecostal preacher used to go fishing all the time. They had a special place, a lake they went to. They fished the same place in that lake every time. And they finally talked that Catholic priest into coming fishing with them. So they all got together and went up to the lake, parked where they always parked, took their boat out, dropped anchor where they always dropped anchor, and started fishing. And after a couple of hours, the Pentecostal preacher kind of stood up and he stretched and shook himself out. And he said, you know what? My legs are a little stiff. I need to take a walk. So he hops out the side of the boat. And he walks in a great big circle all the way around the boat and hops back in on the other side. Baptist preacher didn't say a word. Catholic priest was going, holy mackerel, what is going on? I mean, I knew they believed in miracles, but walking on water? Pretty soon the Baptist preacher stands up. He says, yep, I think I'll take a walk too. So he hops out on that side of the boat, goes all the way around the boat, and hops back in on this side. Never said a word, got in, sat down, picked up his pole. Catholic priest said, a Baptist believes in miracles? Oh my goodness, if a Pentecostal preacher can do it and a Baptist preacher can do it, I can certainly do it. So he stands up, he stretches and said, yeah, boys, you know, my legs are a little tired too. I think I'll take a walk. And he walks over to the side of the boat and he's standing there looking at the water. Baptist preacher leans over to the Pentecostal preacher and he goes, do you think we should tell him where the rocks are? <laughs> Things are not always what they seem, are they? Things are not always what they seem. We think things are one way. He thought, well, these guys can walk on water. No, they were just walking on rocks that were just below the surface. wonder how long it took them to figure out where all the rocks were, don't you? But they're not always what they seem. Things in our lives, things which are around us. I want to read you a passage of Scripture, and then we'll pray and get right into the sermon. By the way, you could tell how well I followed his advice. He also taught us in sermon prep that there's three points, three subpoints, and a poem. I don't do that either. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. In Romans chapter 7, it's here. Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For uh, that, well, let me try that again. For there is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. 
The thing that I would do, I don't do. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you anoint us here with the presence and power of your spirit as we preach the word. We ask, Father, that you cause your words to flow from my mouth, that I might say and do the things that you want me to do during this half hour, and that the audience might both hear your word and understand your meanings and receive it with the power of which it comes. For those of us that are online, Father, we pray that same thing, that you focus their attention, that they might truly hear your word as well. Thank you, Father, for what you're about to do in Jesus' name. I want to give you some examples from the Bible of things that <clears throat> seemed one way but really weren't what they seemed. So let's just, I'm not going to read the passages connected to them. You can do that. But, but uh, in Daniel, we find that Daniel was put into a lion's den with lions that hadn't been fed for a number of days. The assumption is that when Nebuchadnezzar and those in his court came back and, and looked in the, in the uh, den, that there'd be nothing but pieces left of Daniel. It looked as if, it seemed as if, Daniel was a goner, but that's not the case. It just seemed that way. Here's another one, uh, jo uh, Jonah in the belly of the great anointed fish that God sent his way. Again, a man who was called to do something, who, who decided that he didn't want to do that, so he fled. Uh, we heard Pastor talk about this last week, and he, and he was swallowed by a great whale, to make a short story. Uh, and in that whale, it seemed as if Jonah was going to die. He thoroughly believed he was going to die. It just seemed that way. It wasn't that way, but it seemed that way. Jesus on the cross, it looked as if the ministry of Jesus was over as he hung on the cross. Roman history tells us that not one single person who was crucified on a cross survived it. And it seemed as if Jesus wasn't going to either. When we were lost in our sins prior to coming to know Christ, it seemed as if there was no hope for us. We'd all heard, you know, that we were all going to that the hot place, you know, because of our sins and all that stuff. And we felt hopeless. What could we do with what we were? We couldn't do anything. So it just seemed to us that our life was purposeless and hopeless. And yet, coming to know the Lord as your Savior, coming to know Him, and then slipping back into the flesh, sinning as a believer, and then it seemed again that we were hopeless. Have you ever been there? Have, is there a, a time in your life or a, a habitual sin in your life that seems to rule you and just make you so defeated, make you so frustrated that you just can't seem to get up again? You just can't seem to get with it. it the, that joy of the Lord seems to be gone and it affects your entire life. And it seems as if we're hopeless, but my friends, we are not hopeless. Amen? What seems to be true is not true in Christ. Amen? The world says one thing, Christ says another. Who are you going to believe? Somebody tell me. Who are you going to believe? Christ. We're going to believe Christ because Christ's word to the world is that I love you. 
Listen, if throughout this message, the only thing that you take home from this message this morning is this little phrase. It's not even a biblical phrase, but it'll help. Every sin that we commit is because of a lie we're believing. Listen to that. I'm going to say it again. Every sin we commit is because of a lie that we are believing. I'm going to show you that in Scripture. Satan, to begin with, is a liar. I want you to look at John chapter 8, verse 44, and the, first, the second half of it. It says that he was a murderer, talking about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is, and say this with me, no truth in him. It doesn't matter what comes out of his mouth. It's a lie. He is the father of all lies. Nothing good proceeds from his mouth. And when he brings a lie to us and we buy into it, we suffer the consequences of guilt and shame. Sin is the problem with that. Let me give you another example. Let me give you some examples of this. In uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat. See, right here. Any tree you can freely eat. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Plain and simple. Who said that? God said that. Said that to his creatures. Man, and then later on, Adam taught it to Eve. We see that because of what happens when they are tempted. You see, <laughs> listen to this. You will surely die if you eat of that tree. Look at what happens in the next verse. The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. What? What did God say? Tell me. You will die. First thing out of Satan's mouth was, you will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will know and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The lie was in direct contradiction to the word of God. God said, you shall die. Satan said, you're not going to die. You're going to become like God. Don't you want to be like God? Look, at he's so good and great. If you just eat of this fruit, then you'll be just like God. And it'll be wonderful. Was that true? No. Here's another example found in, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of it, of the price of it for himself and his wife with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Here's the liar. Why has Satan filled your heart? He goes on to say, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land. Why did Satan lie to you? Why have you lied to me? And why has Satan convinced you 
of the lie that you could give a portion and keep some for yourself. It seems to be true, but it is not. It brings with it a consequences. You and me, whenever we are tempted to sin, we feel like that temptation is so strong we can't overcome it. It's just too much. We come up with excuses as to why we shouldn't do that. But let me tell you that to be tempted to sin is not sin. I'm going to repeat that one. To be tempted to sin is not the same as sinning. Can I get an amen? All right. I can be tempted to do that which is wrong, but if I don't do it, I haven't sinned. Just the opportunity to sin has been presented. I don't have to sin. And if I do sin, it's because I believe some lies that are in our own minds that leads us to the ability to do that. Number one lie is, it won't hurt anybody. It's just me. What I do doesn't affect anybody else. I can do this in the quietness of my own time. Who's going to see? Who's going to know? Hmm. Won't hurt anybody. Second lie we believe sometimes is that I am just not able to overcome. I can't help myself. I just do it. It happens and I do it and I do it all the time and I'm just not able. For me, that comes for chocolate. If chocolate's there, guess who's eating it? <laughs> I can't help myself. Yeah, you can. But that's the sense. I can't help myself. And here's the biggest lie that comes along that we tend to believe. No one else will know. You say amen? No one else will know. Does that ever come along to you? No one else is going to know. Who, who's going to know what I do in the privacy of my own life? Who's going to know what I do in the darkness of life? Who's going to know what I do except me and me alone? It doesn't bother anybody. The problem is, folks, that there are at least three who know. First of all, God knows. Amen? Nothing escapes the vision from God. Nothing. He sees all that we do, whether good or bad. He knows immediately that we have sinned. Remember in the garden, let's go back there. Remember in the garden? When Adam and Eve heard the Lord approaching in the garden where they normally would go out and greet him, they hid from him. Why did they hide from him? Because they knew that they had sinned. They knew that and were hiding from him, hoping he would not find out. And we see as we go on through that passage that he said, oh, what did you do? Did you eat from the tree? Well, yeah, the devil made me do it, she said. He tricked us, or Adam said it. He tricked us. God knows. You know. You know. You did it. And you know if you need any reinforcement to knowing that you knew it, the guilt that comes to you from doing it. You know that you have done evil. But the good news is, and I should get an amen here, the good news is God knows you did it. Yeah, that's really a good thing to know, that God knows that you sinned. So the results of these three things, of these three people knowing, has some results that affect our lives. Here's the first one. Satan, one, accuses 
you before God. He has unfettered access to the kingdom of God, to the throne room of God, and he can come right up and he can say this. Did you see what your son Richard did? Look what he did. Can you believe that? This is the one that calls you Lord. Look what he did. So he accuses me before God. He not only accuses me before God, he accuses me of the very same thing. Saint knows. And he says to this to me, and this comes to me all the time, and hopefully you'll understand that it comes to you as well. I can't believe you call yourself a Christian and do the things you do. I can't believe that. And what happens as a result of that? Guilt floods in. Shame floods in. And we become ashamed of who we are in Christ. Scripture says, be not ashamed. We become ashamed. Listen to what he said. Here's, here's the things that come about because God knows and Satan accuses. Guilt rushes in. And we stop talking to God. We stop praying as the first consequence of guilt in our lives. Because when we talk to God, God will speak to us. Can you say amen? You want to talk to God, God's going to talk to you if you shut up and listen long enough. So we stop praying. Second thing that happens is that we stop reading God's word. The Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce right to the very center, the core of your life. So God's Word convicts us of sin. We feel even worse. We feel more guilt. So we stop reading the Word. And the last thing to go, folks, the last thing to go is gathering together in the body of Christ. You see Christians who get saved, they come in, they get baptized, they get all excited about the word, they get all excited about living a Christian life, they still haven't learned how to put on the full armor of God and, and to be able to protect themselves from sin and the temptation of sin. They sin, they feel guilty, and things just snowball because they just feel hopeless and helpless. It seems as if they have no hope. It seems as if they have no hope, but that's all. But God... Because he knows and pre-knew what was going to happen in our lives. That he did some things to help us through. John 3.16, probably the most famous scripture in all of the Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that who should ever believeth in him shall not perish, but have, what's this word? Say it again real loud. Eternal, not portional, not until you sin, because we are all sinners. Paul said we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Even as believers, the opportunity to sin is there, and we do sin when we no longer confront Satan, when we no longer do the things that are necessary to, to be victorious over sin. So, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. Romans 7, 18 and 19. Look at these two. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome, trying to help them understand how to have a victorious life in the spirit. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Let me just ask you, in your Christian walk, 
Does that seem to be true in your life? Do you sometimes feel that what you want to do, you never do, and what you don't want to do, you end up doing all the time? Amen? I'm not alone here, am I? Okay, just checking. <laughs> I told you a little bit ago that the good news was that God knows us. God knows. And because he knows, there are some things that we can know. Romans 8.1. Therefore. The old saying, therefore, wherefore, wherefore, the therefore. It's there to let us know that some things are an absolute guaranteed based on the things of the past. Amen? Based on the things of the past. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. Amen? Let me just tell you that in Greek, the word saved is a verb and is always a verb. But it has a different uniqueness to it. In the Greek, the tense of that verb is called pluperfect. We don't have that in English, but in Greek it's there. And let me tell you how that goes. Pluperfect means this. It's an action that happened in the past that has direct consequences for today and carries on for eternity. So whatever happened in the past affects me right now and will continue to affect me through all of eternity. So what is that? Salvation is that. What happened in the past? Christ died on the cross, shed his blood for your sins. For God so loved Richard, remember that verse? 316, for God so loved Richard that he gave his only begotten son. So that happened at the cross and the resurrection. In 1964, it took place in my life. When I gave my life to Christ, invited him to come in and be the Lord of my life, saved me from my sins, both past, present, and future. Saved, past, present, future. Because I sin does not mean that I lose my eternal soul. Hey, that was good news. Somebody should say amen. Because I know I'm not the only one in here that occasionally sins. So everybody says amen. All right. <laughs> Past, present, and future. I am, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. The finish of it all comes when God takes us home. Whenever our rapture day is, whenever we pass, we are delivered to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Can you say amen? Folks, there is help in Christ Jesus. He gave his life for us that we should not die. No good dwells in me. But this one thing I do, I forget that which lies behind and I press on, okay? Here it says there's no condemnation. Verse uh, 837 says, No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. Who loved us? Christ loved us. God loved us. Gave us a spirit of salvation. We now live and we are overwhelmingly conquerors of anything that comes at me. Why? 
Because we're so good? No, because Christ dwells in us. Let me tell you what the Greek says, or actually it's the Hebrew, that says about the word conquers. Conquers is when a king comes in and beats, defeats an enemy. He's the conqueror. But that's not where it ends. He then takes the leader of that other nation. You see this all through the Old Testament. He brings him in. He makes him lay at his feet, and he puts his foot on his neck. Puts his foot on his neck. The reason he does that is to demonstrate that absolute power is now over him. If he even moves, I can crush him with my foot. That's the picture of a conqueror who is overwhelming. God gave us power to be victors. We are not losers. Somebody say amen. We are not losers. We are victors. Victory is ours. Strength is ours. To be able to overcome belongs to you. All you need to do is apply it. You get into your car and you don't start the car. You just sit there. You're not going anywhere no matter where you want to go. You got to start the car, push down, or put it in gear, push down on the gas to go. To be an overwhelming conqueror, you need to do the same thing. You need to apply that to your life. You need to believe that. I am a conqueror. I cannot be defeated. I can flub up, but I can't be defeated. Once I am in the hand of God, I truly am there forever. Philippians. Let's look at this passage. Philippians. Philippians 3, 12 and 13. Not that I have already obtained it. What? The perfect life. I'm in the flesh. I dwell in this world. I haven't attained perfection yet. Or have already become perfect. But I press on. Get this. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. By Christ Jesus. Not that I've already overcome it but that I'm pressing on. Okay, 13. Brethren, do not, I do not regard my... Oh, I already read that one. All right, sorry. Here's the picture. I'm walking along, going in the right direction, and I stumble. I've got two options. I can get up, or I can stay down. God would say to us, get up, son. You're mine. Press on. Or I could just give up and say, ah, this is just too hard for me. I can't do it. No, friends, victory is found in Christ. Get up. And then don't sit there and look as you walk away at that terrible mess you just made back there. Forget that which lies behind and press on to the upward calling of God. That's his plan for you. Not that you suffer in guilt and shame, not that you spend your eternity in hell, but rather by the grace of God, He'll pick us up and we get to press on toward the upward calling of Christ to what he's got for us to do. Press on, grab hold of that which God has called you for and move on with it. Amen? Now let's go look at this, this one. James 4, verse 7. When tempted to do sin, there's three things that you get to do. James 4, 7 says, one, well, actually, let me, let me just put in two other things here. First of all, call upon the Lord. Amen? In your own strength, you failed. So call upon the Lord for victory. Second, confront the liar. Submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil, and he'll what? He'll flee from you. 1 John 4, 4. Look at this one. 
You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the, he sees himself as a ruler of this world, but at the cross, the book of Isaiah says, I saw him fall. He is no longer the ruler. He isn't. God is the ruler in our life. We have overcome him. We have been victorious in him. Oh, please, please, church, listen to me. Don't be defeated by the occasional sin in your life. Know that God's purpose is to give you life and life everlasting. Know that he gave you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, to fill you with strength and power, to read the word of God, to share in fellowship with one another, to worship him in a, in a group gathering or in a separate place at home every morning when you have your quiet time. Know that God does not want you to fail. I have for you that which is good, not that which is evil. He wants to do good in your life, friends. What we need to do is stand up, shake off what fell behind us, and say, Lord God, in your power and strength and wisdom, I come to you to help me overcome. For I am a victor, and all I need to do is trust in you. Can you say amen to that? Would you trust in him? Do you have a sin in your life that's a habitual sin? Do you have the occasional sin that drives you uh, into rebellion against God? that makes you not want to pray or not want to study the word of God? Is there some lie that you're believing that keeps you from the fellowship of believers and to be salt and light in this world? Let me tell you, folks. God is the victor, and so are you.